turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 17. John 17, as we continue our study here. This morning we'll look at verses 20 to 23. Now our text this morning is especially uh, delightful to us. In fact, it's an unusual text. It may be the only one I know of in the Bible. I hadn't really thought carefully, but uh, here is a text where the Bible actually talks about you and me. In fact, here is a text where Jesus actually prays for you and for me. Not just for his immediate disciples, but he looks way down the road of history and prays for all of those who will become his disciples someday through the testimony of those immediate disciples. In other words, he prays for people like the folks at the Wiser Lake Chapel. So what do you think Jesus prayed for us? If you were praying for us, uh, what, what would you pray for? I had an old high school friend that I haven't heard from in 30 years or so call me this morning. And uh, as uh, we chatted a minute, and uh, as he was about to get off the phone, he said, well, how can I pray for you? And I was kind of caught off guard. And, and I, I realized as I went in and was thinking through uh, my sermon again, uh, you know, how would you pray? What, what should we pray for ourselves and for our ministry here and for our life here together? Well, what did Jesus pray for? Well, let's read it and find out. Verse 20, Jesus is praying, My prayer is not for them alone, that is the twelve alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, you could probably state what this passage is about as well as I could. I think there's just one great point to be made here, and that is that Jesus is praying for unity in his church. Jesus is praying for unity in his church. I put it in the present tense, though I admit there's a little bit of a leap of logic here, but I I think you'll agree. I've made some assumptions here, but we know that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father praying for his people, so I have assumed, admittedly, that his prayer now is the same as what his prayer was back then, when three times in this short passage, three separate times, he prays that his people might be one. Jesus is still praying for the unity 
of his church. That is, unless his prayer has already been completely answered and he's moved on to other things, which is the second assumption that I've made here, I'm assuming that what we see in the church today would not normally be called unity. But that's hardly a leap of logic, is it? Jesus is praying for unity in his church. <laughs> I must tell you, when I think of unity among God's people, and I look at the church as I see it, look at the church as I see it reflected in Christian magazines that I get, and uh, articles and news uh, things, and uh, advertising uh, in the church, and all of those things. When I look at the church and think about unity, I almost despair. So far from pursuing unity, we have shown creativity in finding ways to divide the church. For example, we have learned to divide along racial and ethnic lines. The whole book of Ephesians is about the fact that the wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down, no more. Oh, but the but we still have black churches and white churches and Hispanic churches and Dutch churches, German churches. But we haven't just divided along racial or ethnic lines, we've, we've divided along personality lines. We all have our favorite leaders so that we have Wesleyan churches, Calvinistic churches, Lutheran churches, Mennonite churches, they're men's names. Men whose flag we fly. And of course we've divided up over doctrinal controversy, so we have the Evangelical Covenant Church. And we have Baptist churches. And we have Charismatic churches grinding our little theological axis. And then in case we couldn't think of anything more creative, uh, to divide over, we have divided over church government. Who gets to vote? So we have congregational churches. Everybody has a right to vote. And we have Presbyterian churches. Only the presbyters will govern. Presbyter is a word for elder. Or we have Episcopal churches. Only the Episcopos, that's the word for bishop. Only his vote counts. We've been really creative in finding ways to divide. And then the most fun ones are those who divide themselves from the rest because they are above all the division in the church. <laughs> so we have those who call themselves the church of God or the church of Christ or the Catholic, that means the whole universal church or the Bible Church, or the Assembly of God. We don't divide. We're above all the division. We've divided to prove it. Pastor Bruce Milnes, who has written on the Gospel of John, he was a pastor in uh, Vancouver, maybe still is, concludes, it is impossible to believe that the present fragmentation of the Protestant churches and here he adds a note that on a recent computation, the global 
denominational total. How many denominations are there? Was over 22,000 denominations. He says, it is impossible to believe that that present fragmentation is tolerable in the light of Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying for unity in his church. So what kind of unity? Well, it's easy to look at the fragmentation of the organizations that call themselves the church. And certainly that's a sinful thing that we see. Sinful, all these denominations. Has to be sinful. And that clearly is an indication of disunity. But I do think that it would be too simple to say then that Jesus is just praying that there would be organizational unity. That all of his people could fit on one big, huge organizational chart. For example, in the early church, there seems to be some real evidence of unity. The New Testament. But there's almost no organization. The organization and the centralized government in the church came much later, two, three hundred years later. And it continued to grow, the organization did, until in the Middle Ages there was virtually nothing but one huge monolithic church organization. So did that accomplish what Jesus prays for here? Did that unified organization make the faith strong? Did it attract unbelievers to the church where the love and vitality of Christ was manifest? No, it produced exactly the opposite. It produced the dark ages. Charles Haddon Spurgeon described it like this. The world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing that called itself Christianity. And thinking men became infidels. And it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer. So it's too simple to say that Jesus is just praying for organizational unity. We've tried that, and that did not produce what he's talking about. So what's he praying for? <coughs> he's praying for the outworking of the spiritual unity, the supernatural unity that God himself gives to his people. Now that spiritual unity is mentioned in our text several times, so let's just talk about it a minute. First of all, this is a unity that comes from believing the same truth. In verse 20, Jesus prays for those who believe in me 
through these disciples' message. Believe in Jesus through the message. That sounds unmistakably like a reference to the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. Well, and then Jesus goes on to pray. As Jesus goes on to pray, he appeals uh, to, the, to his union with the Father, that they may be one. We'll talk about that more in a minute. His union with the Father. Now, that whole doctrine of Jesus' union with the Father, we call that things like the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are hardly uh, theological baby food doctrines. So those whom Jesus actually prays for here are those who believe that he came from the Father, that he is one with the Father, that he is the eternal Son come in human flesh. You see, it is not stretching the text in the least to say that this unity in the truth which Jesus prays for involves a common belief in the general tenets of the apostles' doctrine. The unity is not just some, based on some general idea that we believe in some kind of Jesus somewhere, somehow. No, it has some solid truth upon which it's based. Jesus is praying for unity in his church that is based upon his truth, the message given, the faith once for all delivered to the apostles. Oh, but this unity that he seeks goes beyond just having a common creed. It's more than that. Jesus prays for a unity that flows out of a spiritual relationship, a spiritual union. For example, in verse 21, he prays, May they also be in us, Father. And then again in verse 23, I in them, Father. Well, that sounds exactly like what the Apostle Paul describes as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That mystical work of God whereby his Spirit takes us and joins us in relationship to Jesus so that we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, that we are spiritually united with him. And then Paul uses this very almost technical term to describe Christians as those who are in Christ. Spiritual union. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is not praying that out of our desire to build something great for him, that we will all get together and hammer out some doctrinal statement that we can agree on, and that'll be it. We'll be unified. Oh, no, there's more than that. Again, Pastor Bruce Mill. The unity Jesus prays for is a reality which God himself gives. We do not have to create anything. Our challenge is to give authentic expression to what God has already worked in our midst. The churches are already one in Christ. 
we need to allow that supernatural unity to find expression in the local church and between churches. You see, Jesus is praying that his church will consistently live out the unity of believing one faith and being joined to him by one spirit, a supernatural spiritual unity. Now just in case there might be any question that that's the kind of unity that he has in mind, a supernatural unity, Jesus describes it further for us in verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Here Jesus is saying that this supernatural, spiritual unity, based on God's truth, worked out and created by God's Spirit, is like the perfect relationship within the Godhead. Between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now that's mind-boggling. God exists from all eternity in perfect relationship. For a million billion years, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have dwelt in perfect unity. There's never been a rift between them. There's never been any competition between them. There's never been anything but one mind, one heart, one will. They are one God. Unity. In perfect trinity. Now Jesus says, Father, if I might just paraphrase what I think his meaning is. Father, since by my death I'm going to take away their sin. And since by my resurrection I'm going to give them new life. Since you are going to give them a new heart. And make them participate in our own nature as our children And since we're going to indwell them with our own spirit, Father, may they then live in the same exact kind of unity that we enjoy. That's what Jesus is praying for. That's beyond our wildest imagination. It's beyond our highest hope of anything we might attain. Jesus is praying that the unity between his people would look just like the unity between he and the Father. Now at that point we might be tempted to say, oh, 
Well, then it's spiritual unity that we're talking about. And yeah, I admit there is some spiritual unity in the church, and certainly there is. Every Christian has experienced some spiritual unity with other Christians. So if there's spiritual unity we're talking about and God does it, well then really this apparent disunity doesn't really matter. It's spiritual unity we're talking about. And the fact that there's 22,000 denominations is fine. <laughs> well, that might sound good. The only problem is Jesus has in mind a unity that is observable. <laughs> observable. In fact, you don't even have to be a Christian to see it. You don't have to do some mental gymnastics and squint and say, oh yeah, yeah, I think I see a little sign of unity. That's kind of how it would be, isn't it? Well, may maybe there's some unity. No, Jesus is praying for a tangible, observable unity that is visible to everybody. We know that because he says so in verse 21. May they be in us so that the world may believe. And again in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I loved them as you love me. Oh, this is the same theme Jesus sounded back in chapter 13, isn't it? By this all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That the world may see observable, tangible unity. One more comment from Bruce Mill. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism according to the prayer of Jesus are not outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel. No, the biggest barriers to evangelism are realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. These are the squalid enemies of the gospel. Jesus is praying that the world may be able to see the unity based on his word worked in his spirit that is analogous, analogous to his own unity in the Godhead, that the world may be able to see that in his church. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Practically, how can this unity be made observable. Well, it starts here, in this body, with these people whose names and faces you know. God has joined us to one another, brothers and sisters. 
whether we like it or not, we are kin. <laughs> we are blood relatives. Now, start protecting one another. Start holding on to one another. Start keeping one another from falling. Encouraging one another. Carefully, privately confronting one another where there's sin. Graciously forgiving one another where you've been sinned against. Restoring one another. Serving one another. In other words, acting toward one another the way that Christ has acted toward us. Full of grace. That means that at the chapel things should look different than they look other places. That means at the chapel there will be no men putting down women. That means at the chapel there will be no women on men-hating tirades. That means at the chapel there will be no racial slurs. Indeed, that we would seize the opportunity to show reconciliation with someone of a different race rather than shy away from it. It means at the chapel there will be no distinction between rich and poor. We are brothers. There will be no suspicion between those more educated or those less educated. Between the old-timer and the newcomer. That there will be no class distinction between clergy and laity. Or leadership and membership. It means that we will serve one another in love. One of my favorite pictures of this, I've shared this with you recently, a couple, a couple of individuals, I think. One of my favorite pictures of what this involves comes from the Apostle Paul's discussion about the church as the body of Christ, with hands and feet and ears and eyes, each part of the body doing its function and serving the rest of the body, the whole body. <clears throat> when I think of that, and of course, we are all like parts of the body, and we can sometimes identify who the hands are that just get things done, and who the ears are that are always listening and thinking. Well, I think about other parts of the body, and I always think about the hair. The hair. Now, you know, the truth is that, as some of you brethren can testify, hair is really pretty useless. We can get along without it. You know? And yet, did you ever think about how much attention we give our hair? Why, we don't just wash it like we wash our hands and the rest of our body. We buy special soap for our hair. And maybe some conditioner to put on it to keep it nice and soft. And then we have special utensils that all they do is take care of our hair. Combs and brushes and hair dryers and things. We spend a bunch of money on taking care of our hair. Then as we walk by the mirror, we always just check to make sure it's like it ought to be. And if we go out and it's blowing or raining, our hair is the first thing we grabbed. 
and hold on to. We pamper this useless hair. <laughs> now, why do we do that? Because every one of us knows that when somebody walks up and looks at us, their first impression of how well we're doing, what kind of person we are, is going to be based on how well kept does our hair look, isn't it? Now, imagine that we had a member of the congregation who seemed as useless and unproductive as our hair. But all the time needed special attention. What worked for everybody else wasn't good enough, had to do some special thing for this member. Had to give special care for this member. Had to have special equipment. Had to have special procedures to serve this member. And every time you turn around, the member was getting out of whack and had to be straightened out and smoothed down, taken care of. Just imagine that we had a member that demanded as much constant checking on them as our hair demands. What would we say? Well, we would say to that brother or sister, who do you think you are? You think the whole church is here just to serve you? <laughs> Wouldn't we? But you see, Jesus knows. And Jesus justifies this. That when the world looks at the church, the world will judge how well it's doing, whether it's true or not, by how well it takes care of its hair members. Jesus is praying that we will understand that. For that's a unifying concept that the care of the hair has to do with me. Because that's part of the body. God's made me a hand and he's given me lots of energy. I can do lots of things. But the hair is pretty useless. It can't do a thing. It can't even hold itself in place. And that's how the body works. You see, it starts here in our congregation to have a whole different attitude toward one another, a whole different attitude of what it means to be part of this body. But then it has to go out beyond this body. It has to do with how we view the rest of the church, how we view other Christians, how we view other churches. How can we show this unity beyond the relationships here in the chapel? Well, I think of a couple of things just to try to apply this in more concrete terms. Here's something that I'm trying to do. About two years ago, I resolved, quite privately in my own thinking, I resolved to stop using labels to describe other Christians. So you may catch me failing sometimes, but I'm really trying to do this now for a couple of years. To not call people Baptists or Presbyterians or Charismatics or Amils or Dispensational or whatever. To call people what God calls us, brothers, sisters, Christians, members of the body, believers, disciples. 
to just not put labels on one another. You know what I found? When you get rid of the labels, see labels throw up walls. When you get rid of the labels and you just talk about real issues, You say to your brother who you know wears a different label than you do, well, what, what do you believe the Bible teaches about this? And he tells you and you say, yeah, but okay, well, what about this verse? Okay, well, then how does this, how do you reconcile that to this? And you really talk about the real issues. You know, I found that when we actually listen to one, one another, the truth that true believers who are trying to be faithful to God's word, the truth that we believe is really not very far apart. Though on some crucial issues we fall on this side rather than this side of a question. But you see, when you erect a 500-year-old wall that's unscalable between those two positions, it seems like we're millions of miles apart, and really, you're only one step apart. All walls will be there, divisions will be there, but at least they're reduced. You can jump back forth across them in fellowship with your brother. If you drop some of the labels. You see, when I call somebody uh, an Arminian. Well, I can just dismiss it. But I think about him anymore. Which, which, which brings me to the next thing. Obviously, we need to understand what the Bible teaches. I hope you know me well enough to know that I do not object to serious study of the Scripture. I do not object to defining what we believe and why. If you're one of those people that say, well, we already believe the same thing, and it really doesn't matter what you believe. Well, shame on you, it does matter. How dare you reduce the wonderful treasures of the intricacy of God's truth down to some kind of inane, generic religion. Oh, no, it's not. It's beautiful in its detail. We've got to understand it. We've got to study it. It takes all of our mental energy to, and, our, and the energy of our heart to try to understand God's truth. But having said all of that, when we do that, there will be differences. There will be differences. We will disagree on how to define this doctrine or that. So where did we ever get the idea that once we have studied something out and come to a conclusion of what we believe is right versus the other positions, where did we get the idea that we then could dis to just, just throw away, dismiss all of our responsibility to love those brothers that we now have come to disagree with. Yes, we will disagree. But whoever said we stop loving one another just because we disagree? Jesus didn't say that. The apostles didn't feel free to do that. It's not in my Bible. You see, we often think that we choose. We're either going to be people who define the truth and let the chips fall where they may, or we're going to be people who love one another and forget about the truth. Oh, no. We must define the truth. 
And we must love one another. Neither one is optional. Jesus is praying that as the church grows and the issues upon which Christians disagree grows, that his people will demonstrate unity. One more practical thing that we can do. We can celebrate the diversity in the church. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus prays for unity, it's when he's looking beyond these immediate disciples. He's looking down the road, years and years and years, when the gospel is going to go outside the bounds of the little nation of Israel, outside those little customs, outside those ancient traditions, out into all the customs and cultures and languages and tribes of the world. And what does Jesus pray when he looks at that and says, Father, I pray for all of those who are going to believe that they may be one, Father. Now see, he has designed that it would go and be this diverse church, but he knows that the diversity is a threat to the manifestation of the unity. So where did we get the idea then that we need to all be alike? We're not going to be alike. We don't all look alike. We don't like the same things. We don't have the same style. We don't like the same customs. We express ourselves different ways. We like to worship different ways. That's all right. Enjoy the diversity. We tended to think, well, we've got to conform everybody to be just like me. No, we don't. The Bible says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. They're different kinds of working, but the same God that works in all. So enjoy the difference. Exult in the difference. You know, the fact that someone is different than you is not a threat to you. It's a, it's a matter of great freedom. You see, I don't have to waste any time trying to be like you. Because I know that you're being like you. I can be like me. It's crazy if I have to run around trying to be like you, like be, be like everybody else and do what everybody else should be doing. I can't do that. Oh, but God has called us to be different. Can you imagine how frustrating it get to the ear to try to be, keep being like a hand? Can't be like a hand. Just be the ear. Let the hand be the hand. Oh, but you see, all that diversity breeds suspicion. We look at each other and say, I don't know, he looks pretty different. I don't know about him. I don't know about that church. Uh, they don't do things the way we do them. Oh. What do you think it means that they have drums in that church? What do you think it means that their pastor wears a robe in that church? What do you think it means that they don't use any musical instruments in that church? What do you think it means that they're so noisy? What do you think it means that they're so quiet? It means that we're different. That's what it means. We see things differently. We emphasize different things. But you see, if we let suspicion start to build, then we quickly say, ah, I knew it, I knew it. Something's wrong with him. <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters, there's going to be diversity in Christ's church. It will never all be all alike. But it is beautiful. God made it that way. So enjoy it. Delight in it. 
You don't have to be like things you don't like. Be what you are, but delight in other people being what God called them to be. Well, I want to close. But there's one thought I want to leave with you as I close. It's about the glory. The glory. Um, in verse 22, Jesus prays, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are. I tried to figure out what that meant. What's he talking about? I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one. What glory has Jesus given to us that would cause us to be one like he is? I scratched my head, I scrounged for answers, I read every book I had, and I don't know for sure what that means. But may I tentatively suggest just a possible answer of what it means, because I know this is a true, this is a true uh, uh, statement. In the beginning of this chapter 17, when Jesus began his prayer, he began, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son. Now, do you remember what glory he was talking about in that first verse? He was talking about going to the cross. He was talking about obeying the Father by going to the cross and thus accomplishing that glorious plan of God that awaited him on the other side of the suffering. Now next week, we're going to look at the end of this passage, and we're going to see a discussion of glory to come when we see Jesus face to face. But could it be possible that here in these verses, when Jesus says, Father, I've given them the glory you gave me, that they might be one. Before he talks about the glory to come, isn't it possible that he's also speaking of the glory of the cross? Of dying to self in order that the glorious unity of Christ's body might be manifested for all eternity? That's what it costs, you know, for there to be unity in the church. You die. That's what it costs. You don't have everything your way. You lay down your selfish interest. Allow yourself to lose. You take off your robes of privilege and you wash feet like a common slave. You die. But that was Jesus' glory. He who had it all with the Father made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, went to the cross. And when Paul writes that for us, he, he introduces that discussion of Jesus' humiliation and then his glory with these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves 
Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be exactly the same as Jesus, who being in the form of God, humbled himself and made himself nothing and went to the cross. Could it be that the glory that brings unity is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross every day and follow me. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake finds it. This morning Jesus is praying that we for whom he died would share the glory of dying that others might live. Well, that's the way of unity in his church. Amen. Dear Father, I pray that you would make us one. And Father, there are a lot of things that we can't pray with any confidence, but this we pray with absolute confidence. Because we know you pray this, Father, Lord Jesus. And we know that your prayer will always be answered. And so I just pray that since we know that this is exactly what you plan to do and what you are doing, what you will do, more and more I pray that we might be doing what you've given us to do, expressing this, living it out. 